Hello and welcome to Trinity Bible Media, a teaching apologetics and outreach ministry of Trinity Bible Church in Cypress, Texas, USA. For more information, please visit www.trinitybiblemedia.com. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. D.A. Carson tells the story of a missionary who was sent from Canada to share the gospel in a large rural area of India. Now, if you know anything at all about India, you know that it is very diverse in terms of culture, language, and of course religious beliefs. What you may not know is that it has a tremendous capacity for syncretism. That is, there's an overwhelming tendency to blend different belief systems together. When they hear something new, it's generally absorbed into their existing worldview. This missionary was well aware of that tendency, and so he took great pains to emphasize the sufficiency and the exclusivity of faith in Christ alone. For over a decade, he preached the gospel in villages throughout the region and heard many, many people make professions of faith. But he didn't plant a single church. Despite warnings, despite emphasizing the exclusivity of the only begotten Son, Despite all of that, people still, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus as their Savior, but then they turned right around and incorporated him into their Hindu or pantheistic systems of belief. After 12 years, he returned to Canada, very discouraged, and spent time reflecting on what had happened. And then he returned to India. But instead of casting a broad evangelistic net, he limited his ministry to two villages. He opened the Bible to Genesis 1, and began explaining to them who God is, who human beings are, and the distinction between the sovereign creator God on the one hand and the created order on the other. He stepped through the calling of Abraham, the history of Israel, all the way to Christ, always pointing back to the one true and living creator God. After four years, he had seen relatively few converts, but he had planted two churches. The gospel was taking root and beginning to grow. So what happened? The error that the missionary had made in his original 12-year mission was the same one that we all tend to make on pretty much an ongoing basis. We think that the person we are talking to shares our worldview. We think that what they believe about the nature of God is more or less what we believe about the nature of God. We think that they know he is a particular kind of being. The history is moving toward a climactic end with our ultimate destiny being either rewards in heaven or punishment in hell. That there is an objectively true reality and that there are certain things that are eternally good and other things that are always and forever evil. And so we tend to go straight to the heart of the gospel, which is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ without placing it in its cosmic biblical context, expecting everyone to interpret it and understand it in the same way we do. Now, 50 years ago, you could do that, at least in the West. 50 years ago, the Christian worldview was the dominant understanding of how the world operates. Sure, there was as much sin in the world then as there is now, but it was generally kept under wraps because Western society at large recognized sin as sin. Even atheists were what you could call Christian atheists because the God they didn't believe in was the Christian God. But it's different now. Do you believe in God is an almost meaningless question because we have no idea what enters a person's mind when they hear that word. We assume that what we mean by God is the same as what they mean by God, 
Well, we're making a very naive and a very dangerous assumption. The world in which we live no longer affords us that luxury. But this is not a unique situation. In fact, confusion about the nature of God has been a problem throughout the majority of human history, including biblical times. This means that we are not left without a model for dealing with this kind of problem. As it turns out, the Apostle Paul ran into the same kind of worldview confusion in the first century that we do today. And the way he dealt with it is essentially the same way our Canadian missionary friend dealt with it upon his return to India. And it's the same way we should deal with it too. In this episode, we will not only consider Paul's method, we will also examine what kind of deficient views of God he was encountering, since, as it turns out, they are more or less the same kind of corruptions that we see today. So let's turn to Acts 17 and listen to what Paul has to say to a group of pagan intellectuals in the heart of the city of Athens, at a place often referred to as Mars Hill. We will begin in verses 16 through 21, which sets the stage for Paul's sermon. The sermon itself starts in verse 22, and we'll get to that shortly. So starting in verse 16, we find Paul by himself in Athens. He has just sent for Timothy and Silas to join him there. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Again, that was Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. As Paul waits for his companions, he visits the various parts of Athens and encounters pagan idols pretty much everywhere he goes. Suffice it to say, he is not very happy. Idols, shrines, and altars dedicated to false gods litter the whole city. Nevertheless, he follows the normal routine of first sharing the gospel in the Jewish synagogues before witnessing to the Gentiles. But, of course, this is Athens. And so when Paul speaks to the Gentiles, he's going to encounter a wide variety of different ideologies and philosophies. In particular, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, mentions two of these schools by name, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Keep those names in the back of your mind. We'll talk about what each of those schools believed about God and about the world and why it's relevant to us today over the course of the next couple of episodes. Paul engages with these folks in the marketplace, a place where not only money is exchanged, but ideas as well. After hearing him out, these philosophers decide to take him to the big dogs, to a place called the Areopagus. Now what is that? In ancient Greece, each city would dedicate its highest point to the construction of a temple for the patron god or goddess of that particular city. This is called the Acropolis, or High City. By worshipping at the highest possible point, the pagans believed that they were closer to the gods in heaven. The Acropolis in Athens held the Parthenon, built in the 5th century BC, which was dedicated to the patron goddess of Athens, whose name was Athena. Northwest of the Parthenon was a hill called the Areopagus, which was dedicated to the god of war, Ares. Areopagus means Rock of Ares. The Romanized version of the name is translated to Mars Hill, after their god of war, Mars. 
The Areopagus was also the name of a high council which met at that place. So when we talk about the Areopagus, it's difficult to say if we're talking about the council or the place itself. Nevertheless, this is where Paul was taken to present the gospel to the intellectual elite of the city of Athens. And now the table is set for Paul's speech. So let's have a look, starting in verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Again, this is Acts 17, verses 22 and 23. Here, Paul is meeting the pagans where they are. He begins with the familiar, the many objects of the worship and the altar to the unknown God. Then he transitions to the unfamiliar, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so the stage is set. He's ready to lay it on him. Verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, it's Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. By coming out of the gate with the God who made the world and everything in it, Paul immediately puts them on notice that he is not talking about just another God among the many in their pantheon. He is not talking about a God who really just amounts to the sum total of all the stuff in the material world. In fact, he's not talking about a God who is a part of the world at all. No, he's talking about the God who made, who created, who brought into being the entire universe, things both visible and invisible. He's talking about the God who gives us life and breath and everything else, the God we have all rebelled against, the God to whom we may only be reconciled by the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone. He is talking about the God of Genesis 1. And the God of Genesis 1 is radically different than anything any of these pagan intellectuals have ever heard of. Like I alluded to earlier, there were all sorts of beliefs and ideas about the nature of God and his relationship to the world. The big three in this crowd were polytheism, that is, the belief in many gods, pantheism, the idea that the world itself is God, and a sort of deism, where God is detached and uninvolved with the world. In this short sermon, Paul clearly attacks all three of those belief systems while simultaneously presenting the truth about the one true and living God. Now, it's important that we grasp this. If we don't understand what his audience believed, we will fail to appreciate the polemical nature of what he's saying. We won't really understand what he's driving at. So here's what's happening. When he proclaims this God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples, nor is he served by human hands, that is a direct assault on the polytheists in the crowd. These folks believe that the gods needed things like food and water in order to survive. In other words, these supposed gods were as dependent upon mankind as mankind was dependent upon the gods. These gods were understood to be created beings. They were born and would eventually die. So they were clearly not eternal or self-sufficient. Not only were these deities enslaved by the same fate, fortune, and chance as ordinary mortals, they relied on humans or other gods to fulfill their needs and desires. The interaction between the people and their imaginary gods really amounted to a sort of mutual backscratching. You scratch the god's back, and he'll scratch yours. If a pagan was planning a trip across the Mediterranean, he would do something nice for Poseidon. 
like feed him by sacrificing a bull or a goat. In return, the god would calm the seas and ensure the traveler arrived at his destination. One of the ways in which this way of thinking was manifested in Israel was the worship of idols. A pagan would carve a piece of wood or stone, or perhaps cast a chunk of silver into a figure that would be identified with their god. They would then bow down and worship it. The prophet Isaiah ran into this sort of thing all the time. His description of the practice of denying the self-sufficient God in exchange for one's own pathetic creation drips with disdain. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 14 through 17, the prophet writes, He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Again, it was Isaiah chapter 44, verses 14 through 17. Now, when we hear that, it's easy to dismiss the behavior as something that only an ancient or primitive culture would practice, but not so fast. Wherever and whatever we spend our time, money, and energy on is what we worship. Our God is that which consumes our thoughts, our hopes, and our priorities. So you have to ask yourself a question. What do you think about most of the time? I mean, if you have 10 minutes to yourself, where do your thoughts go? Well, it's probably not a figurine made of whittled wood, but most of us, I think, tend to put an unhealthy amount of emphasis on our career, our education, well-behaved children, finding a boyfriend or girlfriend, our 401k, or our prominence on Twitter, Facebook, or TikTok. Very often, we place our deliverance, that is, our happiness or our sense of self-worth, in those things, which makes us no different than the ancient idolater. Those are all created things, and they are examples of the sort of things that we elevate to a place where only God belongs. We elevate them just like the pagans elevate their chunks of wood. And that is not a good place to be. It's actually a violation of the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. But that's not the only way we can get ourselves into trouble here. Thinking inadequate thoughts about God is another problem and one that many of today's professing Christians are guilty of. Now, what do I mean by that? To answer that question, let's turn to Psalm 50. Here, God is responding to the Israelites who think that their sacrifices were somehow for his benefit, like they were doing him a favor or something, when in reality, those sacrifices were for the benefit of the worshiper. Picking up in Psalm 50, verse 7, we read, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? 
Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Again, that's Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15. Notice that he does not rebuke them for failing to make the appropriate sacrifices. No, they are faithful in that regard. He says, your burnt offerings are continually before me. He rebukes them for thinking that he needs those sacrifices in order to survive, that he's like the pagan gods who must be fed by their minions. They do not understand that he is the giver and they are the receivers. They did not observe the fact that he is self-sufficient. The blasphemous oversight is evil because it paints him as a lesser god. So if God doesn't need the sacrifice of goats or bulls, then what was their purpose? As the psalmist says, it is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The animals do not provide sustenance for the Almighty. They are simply a way for the worshipers of the one true God to acknowledge that everything Israel has and is came from Him in the first place. Our offerings today are no different. They don't help Him improve His cosmic income statement or enable Him to build that really cool wing in the youth department. They are, or at least they should be, offerings of thanksgiving to the Holy God. But today, many professing Christians view the Lord in much the same way the pagans viewed their idols. They see Him as needy, wringing His hands in worry over being accepted by us. That's the trajectory of today's mainstream churches. Many so-called preachers speak of God wooing and romancing mankind into a relationship. They could just as well be describing a desperate teenager in search of a prom date. A.W. Tozer addresses such nauseating dribble. And I quote, 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether God's free determination, not by our desert, nor by divine necessity. Unquote. I opened with a D.A. Carson example. Now here's another one. Don't be tempted to envision God telling his cosmic therapist, Man, I am so depressed this week. Sunday can't get here fast enough. All of those people singing to me and talking about me really helps me get by. No, he doesn't need you or me. Perfect love, glory, and communication were shared between the three members of the Trinity without the existence of anything else. They lack nothing at all, including companionship. The Gospel of John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. To think that the internal relationship within the Trinity lacks something that you or I could fulfill is delusional. Our worship does not make Him more glorious. It simply shows His glory to us. We are the beneficiaries, not Him. We could also consider the Lord's rhetorical question of Job. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The thought that God could have a debtor or request help from someone is absurd. And the thought that we are somehow doing God a favor is just as absurd. As Paul says in Romans 11.35, From him and through him and to him are all things. Our offerings and our tithes are like a child buying a gift for the parent 
when the money that was used for the purchase originated with the parent in the first place. Sure, God enjoys the offering just as the parent enjoys the gift, but the abilities of neither are increased. So if we add absolutely nothing to God in any way, does this mean that we count for nothing or that he does not care about us? Absolutely not. In fact, his aseity should be an encouragement for us. How does John 3.16 begin? For God so loved the world. In his love for us, he allowed his only begotten son to be tortured and brutally murdered so that we may be reconciled to him. And what was the motivation for that love? Does he love us because he needs something? Does he love us for what we can do for him? If so, could that really be counted as love? I don't think so. My point is that God loves us, not in a manipulative way or as a means to an end, but as an end in itself. Since his motivation for creating us, sustaining us, and redeeming us was not based on any sort of need, those acts were born of love unmatched in any way. All right, so we're running a bit long, but I'd like to make one more point before you go. I'll try to make it quick. A person's ethics, that is, the moral principles which govern our lives, are born out of what we think about God. Another way to put it is that we follow our God's lead. We align our behaviors with theirs. So here's a question. What kind of ethic comes out of pagan worship, where gods and men perform favors for one another? How do people tend to treat one another in that kind of culture? Well, I'll tell you how they treat each other. They ask, what's in it for me? You see, people do follow their God's lead. And in a pagan culture, they barter good deeds. Everything is based on favors and paybacks. They don't legitimately care about each other. They help each other with the expectation of being helped back. Now I'll ask, what kind of ethic follows from a God who sets the example of loving those who have no possibility of ever paying him back, never being able to benefit him? We'll answer that question by looking at what Jesus has to say in Matthew 25 concerning the final judgment, starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, the expectation of our judge is that we love those who can't repay the favor, the same way he loves us even though we can't repay the favor. He wants us to reflect his own character and glory by helping the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the legitimately oppressed. And when we do that, we are following the Lord's example of loving those who can't pay us back. And that is the kind of ethic that follows from understanding who this amazing creator of the universe is, an ethic where we love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, with that, I think it's time to wrap it up. In this episode, we were able to lay a bit of groundwork, 
We talked about presenting the gospel in its full context in a similar manner to Paul's sermon in Athens, and we touched on some deficiencies of pagan belief, particularly polytheism. Next time, we'll continue in Acts 17 and have a look at the pantheists. If you're not sure what that is, don't worry. You will after the next episode. Until then, may God bless you. Well, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get to know us better, please visit www.trinitybiblemedia.com.